0: Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would rapid fire some answers to some of your emails. This first group of questions are from Discord. These are on the channel that's like quick questions, or I can't remember what the channel is called, but... Susie Danger asked a question. My son often confides in me, but also says, don't tell dad. How do I navigate this? There are things I feel his father should know, but if my son were to find out I told him all trust would be lost so end of question so Susie Danger is like my son says I'm going to tell you something in secret but don't tell dad but she's saying "Uh, I feel like his father should know about some of these things okay the first thing I'll say is there's no easy answer to this you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place to some extent the factors to consider are obviously what's being told to you How consequential is it? Because by not telling the father, you could be kind of lying by omission to some extent to them, even though the person who told you told you not to tell them. Or is it just like, my favorite color is blue and he just doesn't want dad to know? Or is it just a game that your kid is playing? Also the age of the child, right? If your child is 16, that's different than if your child is six. Um, in some obvious ways, I think. But the thing that I would do is, I would talk to your son about what's going on and ask him, you know, okay, I'll keep your secret because I want you to trust me, but why don't you want to tell dad? And I would, you know, work on that. That could take a while, but I would work on that in terms of helping your son be okay with telling dad or have your son tell dad himself. Maybe there's some worry there or some game he's playing or something. Uh, If it's an immediate thing that needs to be said, then you might actually have to tell the dad. Uh, You know, parents need to stick together and children shouldn't be allowed to drive a wedge between their parents, especially if it's an important detail. Um, But also you want to gauge like, well, would... The dad get really upset if he, you know, if, it t- if I take a while to tell him, you know, there's just a lot of things to consider. But the main thing, the main question is, why does your son want to keep secrets from dad? And I would address that. All right. Alex L says, would you be interested in watching Family Therapy with Dr. Jen, which is a reality show where families have therapy with a marriage and family therapist? And are you going to react to other couples on Showtime's Couples Therapy? End of question. Um, sure, I'll add that to the list, Family Therapy with Dr. Jen. I have a lot of things on my list, I have to tell you. Um, a lot of requests. There's so many shows to watch, right? Also, with regards to Showtime, Showtime's Couples Therapy, I want to watch some of the other couples, but again, it's just sort of not a huge priority because other things are currently taking priority, but they're on the list, and I really liked watching that show because It was different from the other shows that I've been watching and really prompted me to talk about some very specific uh, things about being a couples therapist. All right, this next Discord question is from Artist Wolf. They write, what is the line between introversion and social anxiety? The line between introversion and social anxiety. Yeah, often introversion is used as a synonym for social anxiety, but they are not synonyms. There's really very little that they are related to each other. It might be a slight correlation, but they're really completely different experiences, and let me explain. So zooming out a little bit, introversion is a personality trait that is considered to be one of the five dimensions within the big five personality traits that seem to actually hold Uh, scientific evidence. So let me zoom out even further. When we are trying to study personality, we are looking for very specific scientific evidence that personality traits exist. And the things that we're looking for, and I'm not an expert in this, but uh, in my kind of limited understanding, the way I would describe it is we're looking for uh, enduring traits that humans have that predict behavior and maybe reports of inner experience that seem to be consistent over time for example if a saber-toothed tiger is chasing me and i'm and i'm afraid and then a week later i'm sitting by the fire with my friends and i'm happy the fear i experienced with a saber-toothed tiger is not an enduring personality trait however if I'm generally fearful regardless of circumstance more so than other people, and it predicts behavior that seems to generate from that fear, then that is a personality trait. So one is state versus trait. Anyway, so we look for that. We also look for things that hold together and cohere in terms of uh, personality or behaviors that seem to point to a personality trait and it's it's a very you know strange science, and long story short, we have a lot of personality measures and models, but the big five seem to be the only things that really are sound science. There are other measures uh, like psychopathy and other kinds of dimensions that we will study in people. but the big five are considered kind of um, an important. Uh, personality measure, anyway, point is is that introversion is one of those, and uh in contrast to this, a lot of the claims that you will see people making in psychology, but particularly online about personality traits like type a personality or or even narcissist you'll see that being thrown around don't necessarily hold water when we look at human beings and uh because personality is one very hard to measure and it it's hard to predict humans' behavior in a consistent way, and we also just have a lot of pseudoscience and a lot of cultural silly notions about personality that just don't um, uh, make any sense. Anyway, I, I'm not being very articulate about this, but introversion versus intro, extroversion is a dimension that seems to actually hold up when we look at human beings, and seems to seems to be uh, something that you know everyone is on that spectrum somewhere based on their genetics and their experience. And it seems to predict behavior. So what are the other four? Well, we have openness, you know, being open and curious on one end of the spectrum and being cautious on the other end of the spectrum. You have the other dimension, conscientiousness versus being careless, you know, being irresponsible to some extent. Then you have extroversion, introversion. You have agreeable, friendly versus being critical or suspicious. And you have resilient, confident versus being neurotic, depressed, and anxious. And all of us seem to fall somewhere on each of those dimensions. And you can go online and take a um, maybe not so great, but you know, maybe approximate your big five dimensional aspects. And it's kind of interesting. it These personality traits seem to be consistent over time, but can change, by the way. Experience or just growing older can change things. Um, and it's a dimension, it's a spectrum. So you can be right in the middle of extroversion and introversion. And it can also be kind of context dependent. Some people in some contexts will be more extroverted and other contexts will be more introverted. Um, so it's complicated. But anyway, so what is introversion? Introversion is hard to explain because people often just consider it to be shy or quiet or socially anxious, which it is not. Being introverted is being more, a little bit more inwardly oriented instead of outwardly oriented. They might be a little bit more reserved, not because they're anxious, but because they just don't prefer to be out in the open. You know, they don't prefer to... Um, be the center of attention. They don't prefer to be interacting with a lot of people at once. These people are often a little bit more in their heads, uh, might daydream a little bit more. Uh, A a popular uh, sort of litmus test is for introverts is, you know, you ask someone, so when you socialize with large groups, do you need to go home and spend time alone to recharge your battery? Whereas the opposite is for an extrovert, right? Um, people who are introverts might excel in writing versus talking. They can become overwhelmed by large groups. They can prefer quiet activities. Not always. They can um, be not as pleasing in crowds. Like with Umberto, for example, he's a very extroverted fellow, and he's very pleasing in crowds. He In crowds, he's very interested in how everyone's doing and, knows how to smooth things over in crowds. I'm not like that. I'm more in the middle of extroverted, introverted, and he's more extroverted. Um, they might think a little bit more before they speak more so than extroverted. So none of this, there are two things that people associate with introverts that are not true. One is that they're loners. Introverts are not loners. Introverts need attachments just like anyone else. Introverts desperately need attachments just like extroverts do also introverts are not socially anxious or shy this is anxiety social anxiety or you know shyness pathological shyness is fear-based and it's not a preference you understand so uh introverts they they might look socially anxious because in a large group they might be quiet but they just don't care to be interacting in large groups but you get them alone and they're, they're talking the whole time and they're just like anyone else would be. Whereas extroverts, particularly those at the high end of the spectrum, might really thrive and almost kind of need larger groups of, of interaction, larger groups of people to interact or interacting with lots of people, maybe having lots of close uh, relationships with a number of people. Whereas introverts might prefer just a small set of very close relationships. So to drive the point home, extroverts can absolutely be socially anxious and shy. Because extroverts prefer, based on their personality trait, their disposition, their genetics, their experience, they prefer to be interacting in large groups, but they can also be socially anxious that can prevent them from interacting in large groups. So an extrovert might be very shy, but if we take away their fear, Then they will really prefer and thrive within large groups socially. An introvert can also be socially anxious, but what it'll interfere with for them is interactions in small groups because that's what they're trying to go toward. Whereas introverts don't necessarily care about bigger groups, they can also be socially anxious in those uh, venues. Does that make sense? So introverts are more oriented towards their inner life, and smaller groups extroverts are more oriented outwardly and more interested in larger groups now what, what do we mean by larger groups it's it's kind of hard to figure out you know because the classic is like you have a big party you know and you're like hey and you're moving around the room and you're like how you doing how you doing yeah you know sure but that's not a common thing a more common thing would be at work in a staff meeting of 20 people they're more likely to talk they're more likely to feel at home whereas introverts at a large meeting might just kind of check out even though you go to one of those introverts after the meeting in a small group of two to three people and they're totally comfortable and they're talking all the time that's kind of me so I, I'm in the middle of extrovert introvert and and large staff meetings I almost never said anything I didn't want to I didn't i never it just never occurred to me <laughs> and it wasn't because I was anxious I mean I was slightly anxious but it was more just like I just I just don't care to interact with 20 people at the same time for some reason it just doesn't click with me but you put me in a room with like a few people I'll yammer and ask questions and thrive and want to know what's in your mind like I so Uh, that's my introverted side. But I also have an extroverted side, i.e. the podcast, YouTube channel. And I'm also an organizer of parties. I, you know, get large groups of people together. I'm organizing a Halloween party. And I thrive by organizing large groups of people like that. So, you know, I have aspects of both depending on the situation. So extroverts can be socially anxious. And introverts want interactions with people, desperately, just like everyone else does. Mm -hmm. All right, this next question, I'm gonna do lightning round. I was a little long in the word department when it came to that question answer. So Portal to the Moon says, is it ever appropriate to start couples therapy with a partner's existing therapist who specializes in marriage therapy? I've had therapists tell me that they do not on principle start couples therapy after one partner has already started individual therapy with them, even though both partners were on board and it was just one or two sessions of individual therapy. End of question, yeah. So for example, to be specific, let's say someone comes to me for individual therapy, we do two sessions and the say it's a wife and she's like, I would like to bring my husband in and he would love to start couples therapy with you. We'd both like to switch from individual therapy with me To couples therapy with me and my husband can you do that and what portal to the moon is saying is that uh, therapists have said to them that on principle they will not do that okay so this is a, a kind of a controversial area and the vast majority of therapists that i've talked to have no idea what they're talking about when they answer this question So how do I answer this briefly so I can do lightning round? (laughs) The short answer is it's fine to switch treatment plans from individual to couple and and back. But many therapists do have the opposite idea in their head, even though they they aren't basing it on any ethical code or any kind of literature. Um, We do uh, want to think about things before we switch from individual to couples therapy for sure and there are things to consider and client autonomy and informed consent are central to that ethical consideration and behavior from the therapist, meaning that you have to respect that the client wants to do that and not just shut them down because of your silly uh, little rules. And two, you have to inform your client about the risks, about the pros and the cons and the risks and the possible benefits of making that treatment uh, change. Um, Most notably, if if I change from individual therapy to couples therapy, both individuals in the couple now have control over the client file and both have control about treatment um, plan changes in the future. Meaning that if, say, the wife wants to switch back to individual therapy, but the husband is like, no, I don't want that to happen, then ethically I can't allow that to happen because it's going against. I mean, there are exceptions to that rule, but. Um, generally speaking, you don't want to go against a client when it comes to treatment uh, plan changes. So, um, you know, there, but you know, there there are things you can do, and I've done it before. And I and the problem in my profession is that one marriage and family therapy is kind of an anomaly, and a lot of people are just kind of afraid of the whole endeavor. And so, anytime you do anything a little bit out of the ordinary, when it comes to couple and family therapy, people freak out and I've seen it before. And I'm just like, it's okay, people. Like the world isn't gonna come to an end when we switch from individual to couple. Like, um, so uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that people just don't really understand ethics. And so instead of spending years, which it it really really has taken me to uh, really understand the law and the ethical codes and standard of care, Instead of doing that, which I understand because who has the time, they will just reduce all the ethical decision making down to a few very simple rules like never switch from individual a couple or vice versa. But and if you follow that rule, then you'll avoid potential problems, which might be the best decision if you don't understand ethical codes and legal decision making but you miss out potentially on helping your clients. When someone comes to me and, uh, you know, say an individual comes to me and say, I'm in, you know, she's in therapy with me for six months. And often we're talking about her marriage. And then her husband comes around and says, yeah, let's do couples therapy. And the husband likes me because he's heard about me through the wife. And I know the wife really well. And so if we switch to couples therapy I already have a jump start on the situation, and I have a bond with the wife, and I might even kind of have a bond with the husband because vicariously the husband might like me kind of through that situation. So when the client asks me to switch from an individual couple, and if I said no, I might actually be overall harming the client because they'd have to, one, start over with a brand new therapist, which could really set him back for a while, and two, it might be actually really hard to find a compatible therapist. It's not easy, as some of you know, to find a therapist that really fits with you. So when you've, if it's a good fit and it works, and you know, you explain the pros and the cons and the risks to the client, and you believe the client can make a educated uh, decision, informed decision, you know, because some clients. Uh, due to personality disorders, something might not be able to make that decision. And thus, you want to avoid these kinds of uh, murky areas with them. But if you believe clinically that they can make that choice, then in some ways, it's unethical not to switch from individual to couple. So, uh, but, you know, people don't want to hear that. It's too complicated for them. But the reality is, is that's what the literature talks about. That's the way these ethical boards actually operate. That's the way courts typically operate that's that's the way lawyers will talk with you about but um most therapists in my anecdotal experience do not talk with true experts in ethics in fact in my anecdotal experience a lot of teachers who teach ethics courses are not true experts these people know enough about ethics to scare the bejesus out of the students but not enough to understand the true nature of ethical and legal decision-making. And so you have a bunch of professors, if not the majority, teaching all the students just essentially paranoid wrong information of which contains these simplistic rules like never change from individual to couple. Now again i repeat there are situations ethically and legally where it would be ill-advised to switch from individual to couple i'm not saying that never happens it does for sure but it's not like a hard and fast rule it'd be like saying it's a rule that you should never shake your client's hand or hug your client maybe that's better like never hug your client that's a hard and fast rule No, you can hug your client, but there are things to consider, and there are situations where it might actually be counterproductive or even unethical to hug your client. But it's a case-by-case basis, and it requires a lot of education and understanding of ethical decision-making and or having a supervisor that you can talk about this with. Having said that, if a therapist wants to, as a policy, just not deal with that murkiness and they just want to say, look, I don't want to switch from individual to couple or vice versa. I've I've dealt with that before and it was just too messy for me, then that's fine. That's a I mean, for the most part, you could, again, say that they're potentially harming clients by not allowing for that flexibility, but generally speaking on that rule, I wouldn't say that typically. And so if you as an individual therapist say, I'm not comfortable with that because it doesn't fit with my style, or I don't know enough, or I just don't want to get into that kind of thing, then generally speaking, I would stand behind that. But it's when people generalize that to the entire profession and impose their particular as fears that are based on not a lot on me as a clinician and on everyone else, then we have a problem. All right, so next question, Alex L says, have you heard about therapists traveling the world, living the nomadic lifestyle while providing telehealth therapy? What do you think or what's your opinion on this? End of question. Yeah, if you didn't know this, particularly during the pandemic, a lot of therapists were sitting at home doing telehealth, doing teletherapy, over the internet and it occurred to them wait i could go anywhere because the way that it works in the states is uh, and it's complicated but for the most part if you you know you're wherever you're licensed you need to be licensed in a state so if i'm licensed in wash i am licensed in washington state and so if i have a client that's in washington state that's great and i could be anywhere in the world treating them but if my client leaves the state, I can't treat them anymore. In general, there's some wiggle room there if they're on vacation or something. But, but uh, so during the pandemic, people were like, so I could go visit my parents, I could go on a vacation to Hawaii or something, and and still work with my clients. You know, I have I have five clients a day during the week, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, every day, twenty five clients, and so I'll just do five hours of of work every day, and then I'll, you know, enjoy Hawaii. Why am I stuck in Seattle during the pandemic? Um, To the point where I have a former supervisee who might actually be listening right now, who has been using this time the past year to travel all around the States and experience all sorts of different towns and cultures and people and places. Um, And all the while, treating all of her clients who live here in Washington state and she's a fantastic therapist and her clients really love her. So, uh, you're asking, have I heard of it? Yeah. And what do I think about it? I think it's fine. Uh, you know, telehealth and teletherapy has its role for sure. And I'm glad that it's available to people. It's sort of like being able to talk with your physician over the phone or over video. You know, it can be so much more convenient. It can obviously reduce your risk of infections during a pandemic because, you know, you're not leaving your house. So there's a lot of pros and cons. I will give a caveat that I worry that our trend towards isolation and sitting in front of our computers all day will continue in general, and this is another step on the thousand step process towards the end of this road that is not very good and we've seen i think the effects of these um this cultural movement towards isolation and um, bigger houses less interaction with your even your own family members you know there there are people who don't even necessarily interact with their the people they live with very often because they're in their dens or something um so uh, I'm a hundred percent behind telehealth and teletherapy. I'm a hundred percent behind people living the nomadic lifestyle, but I just think we need to overall be careful about what everyone is doing for. And, and really the central question that I want clients mainly to think about. And of course, right now it's kind of a moot point because a lot of therapists, including myself, are still not seeing people in person because I just don't want to worry about infections. and it's like, why not continue doing teletherapy? I do it over the phone. I don't use video. I hate video conferencing. I'm just so, so tired of video conferencing. I can't stand it. I I haven't done zoom in months and I don't ever want to do it again. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, Ooh, I like zoom. Zoom is really great. You know, teaching over zoom, it's fine. And so much more convenient. And man, the pandemic just killed any affection I had for video conferencing. I am done with it. But so I do phone, and, and, I, and I was used to doing phone therapy prior to um, Skype even existing back in the 90s and, and aughts. But anyway, um, what was I saying? Uh, the question is this. Clients need to think about what they need. And if it can be facilitated, sometimes even in a superior way, by teletherapy, then go for it. But if, as a client, you need one-on-one in-person interaction, which I, for myself, I would need that. I don't want to do therapy over the phone. Well, let me take that back. There's, there are moments for myself where I might actually like doing therapy as a client over the phone, because I might feel more comfortable to say things. Maybe, you know, I might just sort of lay down on my couch and just free associate feeling more comfortable without the without my therapist, just like right there. So I don't know. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm just saying everyone just really needs to think about that. All right. Next question. All right. Amanda on Discord ask, do you think couple therapy is harder for the clinician than the individual therapy? Answer is yes. 100%. Uh, and it's been universal in my anecdotal experience that people struggle way more with couples on average, than individuals. Certainly you can have a difficult individual and certainly you can have an easy couple, but on average, couples are just so much harder uh, for a variety of reasons. One, you have double the counter-transference and to some extent it might be exponentially doubled and meaning it's quadrupled. And also you're being massively triangulated by both people and they're often complaining about each other. So how do you validate one while not ostracizing the other it's it's and that 's just the beginning of the problem and, and couples are highly triggered by each other that's probably the biggest um, factor is that when an individual comes in and complains about their partner they're not triggered in the moment they're uh, usually but um, I mean certainly there can be cases where an individual can be triggered in the moment but not often. But definitely when you bring both people into the office, they're gonna trigger each other in your office and they are going to escalate in terms of their emotional arousal and their distress level. And they're not gonna be thinking straight towards each other or towards you. The other question is, do beginning therapists struggle with keeping control of the session when couples are activated? End of question. Yeah, absolutely. And when I teach couples therapy to students, this is This is something that often comes up. I will have the role players, or they will just naturally get to this place where they will actively fight and maybe even ignore the therapist, which happens. Um, I in my early career was known for having very activated couples who would yell at each other, and I would try to get them to stop, but they wouldn't and so and for other reasons along these lines my Agency actually put me in another building because my clients were so loud that they were um, disturbing the other clients in the other offices. And so, um, and I didn't consider it a failure. I just thought it was part of what couple and family therapy is, you know, sometimes you get heated, you know, and it's fine within limits. Um, the other thing is that you don't have to control your clients. You know, if they start yelling at each other, it's not your job to stop them from, you know, they're they're adults. They can they can yell at each other. So a big part of your as a therapist's um, professionalism and abilities as a therapist is really acknowledging I, I'm not in control. I don't have to control them. Uh, if they're going to yell in my office, then go for it. Even if one person is kind of abusing the other person. It, it's it's not your job. You're not a savior of human. And you don't have the ability to control. You don't have the ability to save. So you can only do what you can do. And um, yeah, next question. Uh, Laura says, what is your recording schedule like? I'm just in awe with the amount of content that you keep putting out. Also, do you record your reaction to a full episode and then record a couple of outros? Or do you watch in segments? Um, interesting question. I could go on and on about this, but in brief, you say, what is my recording schedule like? Um, I record usually in the afternoon and the evening, because in the morning I have my routine, I like work out and um, I do emails or there's something in the house that needs to be done or a chore. You know, I, I, w- When I sit down to make a video or record an episode, an audio episode i i feel like i i need everything to kind of be orderly all my ducks need to be in a row everything needs to be clean everything needs to be done and then i can kind of relax and and make content and and i'm also a night owl so i'm cognitively probably at my at my my best in in the evening like right now it's almost seven o'clock and i'll probably be recording for a while um so that's the time of day in terms of when, like what day I do, it's really random. Like I I will record on a Monday or a Saturday or a Wednesday. You know, it's really just totally up in the air, especially now that I no longer am full time at the university and my practice is very small. Um most of my work week is now podcast stuff. And so and by the way, um there haven't been very many deep dives lately because I, my life has been in total chaos for the last few months, if not longer. And I've talked about this before, but I think I hope in the next month or two, my life will get more under control and I'll be able to do some deep dives. I have so much desire to do. I, w- I want to do this deep dive on defense mechanisms, and I think it'll be a really good one. I think it'll be a long one Um. anyway. Uh, so yeah, I, so if you're in awe about how much content I put out, um, there's a lot of things that go into that. One is, is that I have a lot of time to do podcast stuff because y'all have become patrons or many of you have become patrons, which gives me the ability to pay my bills instead of working at the university as much. And, uh, another thing is I've become pretty efficient that, yeah, uh, you know, there's so many technical things of posting episodes, and and then I have the pod wife Stacy who helps with a lot of the technical side as well, and that frees me up to have more time. So, um, I have I have a fair amount of time, and I'm and I'm fairly efficient because I've been doing this podcast for 13 plus years, and so I I have it kind of down to a yeah you know, I I'm 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 a big fan of efficiency. I don't like wasted time, and I don't like wasted effort, and so I'm. I like to get thing. I like to hone things down to, because really, when I when it when it breaks down to it, I if I could have my way, I would automate everything or have other people do everything, and I would just do content. But it just doesn't work out that way because there's all this random. I won't even you know I I would I, I sometimes I'll spend an entire day just like snaking wires around my office between my computer and my interface and my camera and my microphones like it. it, there's so much to go. Yeah. Anyway, point is, is, (laughs) um, there's that, uh, and when I do reaction videos, I will do batches. So I'll sit down. It depends on how much time I have, but kind of best case scenario. I sit down at like three o'clock or something and I just record video after video after video for like six or seven hours and then the next day i'll i'll i have to i don't know if if people who watch my reaction videos it might not look like it but they're they're heavily edited i have to edit them heavily to make them snappy because if i don't edit them there's a lot of dead air and a lot of little glitches here and there that would um make it a lot less of a quality of a product anyway then you say um do you record your reaction to a full episode and then record a couple of outros or do you watch in segments? It depends. So um, usually I will watch segments and I'll do an intro and an outro. But sometimes I'll watch a a video and I'll do an intro at the beginning. But then at the very end, I do an outro. And then I realize I recorded for like three hours. That's not one episode. (laughs) That's going to be like... Four episodes. So then I'll I'll go back and record a bunch of intros and outros if that makes sense. Anyway, next question. Uh, anonymous patron says I wor- I worry that you work too much. Well, this person wasn't on um, Discord. This person just emailed. us related to this. I worry that you work too much. Maybe you should take a break. I hope you are well and taking care of yourself. Well, anonymous patron, that's very nice of you. Uh, I don't work too much. I'm I love my job. Plus this job called podcasting is enjoyable. Like it doesn't feel like working. In fact, as an example of this, I am such a list taker and a, a data uh, entry person that I have been, I've been entering how many, when I say this out loud, it sounds so demented, but I have kept track of how many hours I've worked daily for decades. So I can go back and it's all in a spreadsheet in Excel. I can go back years and tell you exactly how many hours I worked every day for years and years and years. And so I have this column where I record how much I work. Podcast working is in a different column because it doesn't feel like work to me. <laughs> I mean, it definitely can feel like work, like snaking. Uh, you know, wires around my office, or you know, posting stuff on YouTube, or dealing with copyright crap on YouTube, or I don't know. There's just a lot of work-related things for sure. But it, I don't know. It doesn't feel bad. Um, you know, there's something about being self-employed that it just feels. I don't know, less of a bother. When you're at a large organization like a university and they're telling you to do some sort of busy work thing, it, I don't know, it just doesn't feel, because it doesn't feel like it, it matters, you know? When you're self-employed, a small business, everything feels like it matters. You know why you're doing it. Anyway, so I it doesn't feel like working to me. And I thank all of you who have become patrons. Um, and if you haven't become a patron yet, please do so, cause um, people are always sort of dropping off of the patron list, and so we need a, a fresh new group every month to uh, fill the empty spots. And it has—it's been quite a journey over the past 13 plus years, going from uh, an extremely humble podcast in the beginning for many years to now. This all I do, <laughs> and uh, uh, but yeah. So you worry that I work too much yeah, you know, there's some wisdom to that. Uh, you know, I had all these vacations planned before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit. And, you know, you can't, it, it just feels silly just taking a vacation and sitting at home. And I'm still, particularly now that the Delta is on the rise, I'm not comfortable with getting in an airplane, really. It's like, I'm not that desperate to travel. I'd love to, honestly, but I'm not. I'd also love to not get super sick or to spread the virus around or to worry about it for that matter. Because that's another consideration. It's like, imagine I get on a plane and then I arrive in, you know, Mexico or something. And for the first like five days, I'm just terrified that I'm going to get sick or something. Anyway, um, so I, uh, since the pandemic started almost two years ago, by the way, a year and a half ago, I haven't taken any time off. <laughs> I've taken zero time off and this podcast and all my other work at the university and my practice, it's, you know, it's seven days a week. So I wonder if I'm working too much. I don't, it doesn't feel like it. Maybe I am. Um, but honestly, what would I do? <laughs> Cause on the days that I work, um, I still have a lot of fun, you know, Stacy and I do stuff or I'll hang out with my friends in the evening or go to lunch. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I feel like I sprinkle my vacation out throughout all the time and I kind of like that honestly I like I remember uh early in like high school I remember thinking I'd rather have cuz I remember calculating if you added up all the vacation time that you get in high school you know like spring break or winter break and you sprinkled it out you would have a lot of 3 day Uh, weekends. And I remember thinking, I would rather have a lot of three-day weekends than one week off of school. Um, I don't know if I still agree with that, honestly, but anyway, next question. Um, But first, let's take a break. All right, this next question from Whitney. Is it ethical for a therapist to lie to your client about the reason for termination? Is it ethical for a therapist to lie to your client about the reason for termination? Um, it can be ethical if the lie is required to prevent harm. You know, it's a debatable area we case-by-case case basis, so the answer is it can be ethical. It can also be unethical. And is it more or less ethical if the client struggles with abandonment? Um, well, the key, Whitney, is that for a client who struggles with abandonment, and the therapist is terminating, it's very important that ongoing care is considered and accounted for by the clinician. And I'll also say that a lot of people who have abandonment traumas uh, will provoke therapists in such a way that will motivate them to want to abandon their clients. And that a percentage of those therapists will actually abandon their clients even though that's why the client is in therapy. So that's what I'll say about that. All right, Mochi says, my therapist is going on maternity leave soon and has given me the option to be passed on to another therapist for support. I don't know what to do because I feel like she's the best fit and I'm afraid the other other person won't be. But I'm also afraid that if I stop seeing someone, I will have no support. I also have the option of having just wait until she comes off maternity but that could be next year sometime, what should I do? End of question. Well, I don't know what you should do because I'd have to assess you and know your situation, but generally speaking, you should follow the direction of of your therapist. So if your therapist thinks it's okay to take a break from therapy altogether, then I would consider that. Uh, But I will say that uh, given your description, I would recommend that you consider uh, seeing the other therapist that they're referring you to and just saying, look, I'll see this other therapist and if it's not a good fit, then maybe I'll get another referral. Um, but as soon as my uh, real therapist comes back, then I'll go back to that. So you can get a reassurance like, okay, therapist, I love you, you're a good fit, I'm worried I'm gonna lose you. When you come back from maternity leave, can you guarantee that I will be able to see you regardless of who I see in the interim? And then, you know, especially if she's taking a year of maternity leave, like you probably should see someone during that time. Um, Alex L. also says, would you ever do a collab with Cinema Therapy on YouTube? And the answer is, yeah, sure. Uh, I watch their channel. Good, good YouTube channel. Alex L. also says, if you were to go to a 1980s theme party, what would you wear? (laughs) Well, I have gone to a lot of 80s. Theme parties. That was when I realized I was getting old because I, you know, was a teenager in the eighties, and to go to an eighties theme party, I'm like, oh, because uh, I would go to sixties theme parties, and then I would go to seventies theme parties, and then when eighties theme parties started started to come around, and it came around fast. Like I remember going to eighties theme parties like in the mid to late nineties, so it wasn't even that much time. But what would I wear? Hmm. Well, I couldn't really raid my closet, right? Because I don't have things from the 80s anymore. I mean, I could, if I wanted to be sort of ironic, I could just wear, because I still have some of my football paraphernalia. Like I have my letterman's jacket and my football jersey. So I played football in the 80s in high school and I I could just wear that. (laughs) But if I was to go like full 80s, um golly, there's so many I mean you got the Don Johnson look, right? The pink shirt with the sort of floppy white suit. Um you have the eyesod buttoned all the way up to the top. You have the round sunglasses that were actually retro from sixties, like John Lennon stuff. You have like the ducky look from from Pretty in Pink that I might try to rock. You have like the Devo outfits that you could wear. You could also go like Bon Bon Jovi 80s cuz that's definitely 80s. I don't know. That's a that's a tough one because those outfits are kind of tough to pull off, I would think, right? The Don Johnson would be at easy. You just wear you wear some shades, you get a pink shirt, and you put on a Don Don, Don Johnson type uh, suit from Miami Vice. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, Amanda says, "Do you think therapists should say patients or clients?" Yeah, this is an age-old, or I don't know, decades-old debate. So in the old days, they were called patients because psychoanalysts were typically physicians who would specialize in psychiatry and thus they would call their people patients because it was a medical profession. And then psychologists started coming along and then other kinds of people started coming along and even psychiatrists would change their mind and say, well, you know, and I remember this debate going on in the nineties that patients sounded too pathological. It was pathologizing that it sounded like, there was something broken, you know, because the association, at least in the 90s, was a patient with someone with a disease or something like some kind of illness. And that felt too strong or too stigmatizing, or maybe even just too medical model. And we need to get away from that. And so client was adopted, I believe from lawyers, and maybe other kinds of professions. Uh, Don't quote me on that. But and they said, you know, let's, let's call them clients. And I remember in the 90s, it was like both. It seemed like 50-50. Some people call them patients, some clients. In the family therapy world, they particularly call them clients because they were more progressive in that way. So um, I, 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 for the you know majority of my career and to this day, still mostly say client. But every once in a while, I'll say patient. I don't know why. I think sometimes there's a... There's a slightly different connotation about the word patient that I kind of like. I feel like we've, we have enough distance from the word patient as a negative thing that we can kind of use it again as, uh, as needed. But there are other words that people will use as well, like um, they will say, well, client even sounds too pathologizing and let's call them a consumer uh, in postmodern therapies, which I won't go into. They sometimes will say, you're a consumer. And I believe the reason why they wanted to call them consumers like they were a, a customer who was coming into a to a deli was it was brief therapy. And so it's um, providing this very brief technical uh, service. And you're not really there to develop a, a client therapist relationship anyway. Um, but, I, you know, it's interesting, I think, today in 2021 that. I think we could say patient again without it being stigmatized because we've had so much distance from the stigma of patient. Having said that, the vast majority of people that I know and the literature I read just uses the word client because, you know, it seems to fit the the best. Uh, Shaggy says, Dr. Kirk, watching your gaslighting emails episode and you provided some criteria to be flexible for using the term gaslighting in a societal context. Would you extend it to some corporate settings like the culture at Theranos, where employees were constantly pressured to suppress and discount their own realities about the product and, and conduct there as a problem rather than themselves? One employee even gave a good description of her experience that as being immensely pressured to self-doubt her judgment end of question yeah uh, perhaps and you know i'm not the, the definer of words so it's really just my own uh, thinking and and my own application and i and it's evolving over time as some of you can tell and originally when i started making episodes 4 years ago about gaslighting on this podcast I was very strict about the usage of the term that it pretty much only could be used in abusive ongoing relationships because that was the way it had been used for decades and the the way I had used it and the way it was in the literature. And when people were applying it to, you know, like organizations like Theranos or something, I'm like, well, you know, but you could argue that Theranos was abusive. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes reports of her as being extremely intimidating and uh, threatening to fire people, this kind of thing. So you could apply it there, but, but anyway, as time has gone on and I've heard more stories I have for myself and y'all can define it however you want to, because language is personal and socially constructed and no ivory tower on high has the right to define it for the rest of us, including myself defining it for you. But for me, I will extend it to descriptions that some of y'all would send in about like, you're in the military and there are women being sexually assaulted and the power structure is set up to really make the victims question whether they're overreacting. And then you just start questioning your judgment. And and then there's this effort to make you question your judgment in general and to make you feel crazy and to make you feel like there's something wrong with you. And then, then you stop complaining about being sexually assaulted and you know, problem solve for the power structure. And, uh, I'm like, yeah, you know, um, or sexism and misogyny or racism convincing people that uh, it's them, not the power structure. I think I will apply the word gaslighting to that. It feels um, appropriate, uh, especially when I started to modify my definition of gaslighting to include abusive relationships, you know, domestic violence, intimate partner violence relationships, in which the abuser will oftentimes not be on purpose gaslighting the victim. You know, usually in my experience, the abuser, the perpetrator doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to break down my partner's ability to think and judge so that I can control them more. It is a... a, semi-conscious effort, mostly unconscious effort and kind of a byproduct to some extent, because the abuser often is massively distorted. And so and they're very sure of themselves and they're very angry and very scary. And so this weird, distorted narrative can in when you're isolated, which is often the case with this abuser. As the victim, you start questioning your ability to judge reality because this other person just seems so sure of themselves and they're so angry about things. You're just like, well, maybe I don't understand how reality works. But the abuser isn't trying to lie, if that makes any sense. Anyway, Uh, Alyssa says, Did you get a chance to try the pizza from Seattle, Seattle, from the Seattle Pizza Place on 90 Day Fiance? End of question. Yeah. So, For those of you who don't know, 90 Day Fiance TV show they react to on YouTube. There was a Seattle woman, Ellie, who is uh, shown on the show to own this pizza place in Leschai called Central Pizza, which is across town, so it's not easy for me to get to. But the pizza looks really good, and I want to go, but I haven't yet, so I I plan to. In fact, I was just talking about it with Stacy yesterday. Uh, Your Illusion says do you think a more apt term should be relationship therapy couple and family sounds very specific and potentially limiting to me end of question yeah your illusion you are speaking the truth here and this is something that my field has been struggling with for a long time so in the very beginning of our field we were called marriage and family therapy which uh, very quickly became problematic because we had not only cohabitating unmarried heterosexual couples on the rise but we also had gay couples on on the rise gay and lesbian couples who couldn't get married by definition according to the law for decades Uh, and so in my neck of the woods we divorced the word marriage if you will and adopted the word couple therapy so Most of our field is actually still called marriage and family therapy. It's the uh, you know, American association of marriage and family therapy. The degrees are in marriage and family therapy. Our licenses are in marriage. So, so, you know, um, it is, we still have this extremely limited language of marriage and family therapy. Now gay and lesbian relationships are legalized in the United States. So. Uh, we can, but again, that still ignores people who are cohabitating and, and never get married. So uh, so not only are we still back in marriage and family therapy, <laughs> or, or not only is couple and family therapy limiting, but a lot of our language, official language, is still in marriage and family therapy. Uh, so, And as time has moved forward, a lot of us, marriage and family therapists, have decided to change our official label to relation you say you're saying relationship therapy but we say relational therapy and which is you know essentially the same word and there are a lot of people in my field who will at the very least verbally acknowledge or label ourselves as relational therapists because not only do we work with the families not only do we work with couples but we also work with people that are friends or people who are working together So we're not just interested in couples and families, right? Another aspect of the label relational therapy is that a lot of marriage and family therapists work with individuals and we will will operate relationally, not only between us and the client, but also we're thinking about how the client is situated within their relational world and their sociocultural political world. And so we're thinking about the social dynamics and the relationships that this person is in. So we're relationally oriented and uh, yeah. So, but things move at a snail's pace and uh, the fact that we still haven't changed even today in 2021, our licenses and our association, our professional association is still called marriage and family therapy should tell us something about the rigidity of my field. Sometimes it just really drives me bonkers that because everyone agree or the, you know, a vast majority of people in marriage and family therapy agree that we should call it couple and family therapy, but, but everyone's afraid of change. <laughs> and, and no one wants to change the logos or I don't know. It It's, it's really um, upsetting. And I think it would be a lot more, well, I don't know. Because another big part of these different professions is how do we present ourselves to the public, right? When you call yourself a marriage and family therapist or a couple and family therapist, people instantly kind of know what you are. If you call yourself a relational therapist, well, people know what that means. Uh, not necessarily, right? And so sometimes these decisions are made like, well, if we change, we might lose market share, right? And th- that's a big part of these kinds of moves is uh, if we make a change, then all of our uh, professions, the, the members of our profession will lose clients and lose money and thus not be able to pay their bills and not pay off their student loans. And that's scary to us, so let's just stay the same. All right, I am done with the discord quick questions for the podcast. I'm going on to upper tier patron emails. Anonymous upper tier patron wrote in and said, Hi, Dr. Kirk. I recently had a friend tell me, I'm jealous of you, and I had no idea what to say or even how to feel. Uh, I could tell that it wasn't meant as a congratulations. It meant as a competition sort of thing. For context, it's comparable to your success with growing your podcast, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, I never talk about my wins with anyone except my mom and my husband, because I'm too embarrassed to come across as boastful. Now I'm wondering if others feel this way and they're just not saying it, that they're jealous of me. I'm really uncomfortable with all this. When I see my family and friends happy and succeeding, I get so genuinely excited for them. What is the compassionate way to respond to someone that is saying, I'm jealous of you? End of question, end of email. Um, Yeah, this is an interesting question. I've, I've never, no one's ever asked me this before, but this question of, it sounds like anonymous upper tier patron, you're succeeding in life and, in, in maybe a noticeable way to people around you. And a friend says, I'm jealous of you. You know, that's what she says. Like, I'm jealous of you. Not like, oh my God, I'm so jealous. This is so great. Congratulations. It's like, I'm actually jealous of meaning that I have some hostility towards you, or I feel bad about myself in contrast to how well you're doing. Like this is a negative, you succeeding is a negative experience for me. And that's a, you know, kind of a normal reaction, particularly if you have relational traumas regarding incompetence or success or something or competition with your siblings that's being transferred onto you. Um, and then you're saying, look, when my friends and family succeed, I get genuinely excited. I don't get jealous of them. Well, that could be because you're doing well in life. <laughs> and so uh, not everyone feels good about how their life is going. So uh, there's that. Then you're saying, you know, what do I do to that? How, what's a compassionate way to respond to that? And the uh, I don't know how that's it's a pickle because, you know, someone's like, oh, my God, I'm so jealous of you. How do you respond? I mean, I think what I might say is first you want to clarify, what do you mean by that? When you say you're jealous, are you saying that you're, are you angry at me? Are are you um, envious? Because it's one thing to be like, oh my God, I would love to have your life. It just looks so awesome. That's one thing. It's another thing to be like, I feel like crap in relation to you because your life is so awesome. You know, that's a different thing. It's also different from, I hate you because you're successful, right? So there's there's a lot of different meanings to someone saying I'm jealous. So the first thing is I would ask, like, what do you mean that you're, you're jealous of me? Um, and then depending on what they say, you can just tell them your experience. You know, just be like, so when you say that to me, it makes me feel bad for being successful. Or it makes me feel like I have to hide my successes. Or... Like it makes me feel like I'm flaunting my successes when I'm just trying to succeed in life I, and I work hard at this and I want to and I want to share a little bit of that with my friends. And as as I would love people to share their successes with me and it hurts my feelings that you would not like me to succeed, you know, <laughs> like if you succeeded, I would be 100% happy for you because I love you and for you to have a negative Association with me succeeding—it that just doesn't feel very nice, you know. I get, you know, if if you want things to be better for you, okay, you know, I, that's you and your life. But to somehow bring me down in that process, like that doesn't feel fair. Yeah. You know? So, you know, that's maybe what I would say. All right, this next email is from Upper Tier Patron, anonymous Upper Tier Patron. They ask. For most of my life, I have experienced this cyclical recurring intense urge for changes to myself. For example, getting a huge tattoo that I hate to this day, or adopting a dog I wasn't ready for and had to rehome. Is that impulsivity? These urges are so strong. I completely fixate on these things and spend hours and hours researching. I am trying to combat it, but it's hard. My mind is telling me, do it, do it, do it. You need to do it. I feel generally empty if I'm not pursuing these urges. I am looking for the right therapist, but until then I hope you could help put a name to this recurring issue. End of email. Well, yeah, you obviously need a therapist who specializes in compulsions and intrusive thoughts uh, to help guide you on a label, which would help with treatment. So I can't know what you're suffering from. But candidates would be OCD. There are versions of obsessive compulsive disorder that will manifest like this, where people will, uh, as, as you're saying, fixate totally on some sort of behavior. Uh, you're saying, you know, I need to get a huge tattoo. And then you get one and then you hate it. And then I need to adopt a dog. I need to adopt a dog. You need to do it. You need to do it. And then you adopt a dog. You're not ready for it. And you rehome. And I didn't read your whole email, but you said actually that you're, you had a huge, you had a big urge to get a huge tattoo. You got one. You don't like it. In the past, you had a huge urge to get a dog. You got one. You rehomed it. And now you're having a whole new bout of intense urges to get another huge tattoo and another dog even though you know it didn't work out for you in the past. So, it's very possible that you have a narrow version of obsessive compulsive disorder and need to work on, you know, OCD specific treatments for that possibly medication. It's also possible, you know, you say that you feel generally empty if you're not pursuing these urges. Another avenue, which I think might be less likely, but definitely worth pursuing, and there are others, of of course, as well, is that you developed this um, pattern of thinking as a distraction from some pain. So I would look into that as well. All right, this next uh, email is from upper tier patron, Junie, who I know very well, good old Junie. And uh, she sent in this video of her talking about systems theory and it was highly complicated and i don't know if i can actually summarize it but essentially she was saying that on i i don't know if i understood i don't know if i comprehended but i i think there were two levels that she was talking about on one level systems theory helps because it helps us to see the good in people you know you will have a scapegoat in a family who is being mean and, and breaking rules. And when you zoom out a little bit, you see that this rule breaker fits some important role in the family system that is trying to, and the system is trying to solve a problem through all the roles, including the scapegoat who is breaking rules and that kind of thing. And so what this does is it makes it so that we don't vilify individuals. And we say, well, you know, they're, they're playing a role. Um, but then And so Junia was saying, I like this point of view because I'm generally a positive person and I I like to see the good in people. But then I think she was also saying, which I think is genius, is, but maybe my role in society and maybe my social groups is that I'm supposed to be the one to see the good in people because that's my role. And uh, I'm supposed to see things in a quote-unquote systemic way. um, and, and And the broader system... I'm just playing my role, which is an interesting way. I think that's what Judy was saying. And so essentially systems thinking becomes a role within a system. You know, you need a linear thinker in a system and a systems thinker or something like that. And I will say, yeah, uh, when you start getting into systemic thinking and especially when you start to zoom out more like that and you start thinking about culture and meaning and social constructionism and hermeneutics things get real weird real fast to the point where it breaks my brain in the same way that thinking about how the universe is infinite will break my brain i'm just like but that doesn't make any sense you know or that there's nothing outside of the universe like that breaks my brain the fact that there's there's no there's nothing outside of the universe <laughs> You know, like it does it? I'm like, oh my brain just can't you know, get that. I mean I get it on an intellectual, but I can't feel it. It's spatially makes no sense. Like there's always there's always a boundary, there's always something on the outside of something. Anyway so um there's that. But uh on another level, yeah, in society there are roles to the point where Uh, You could absolutely analyze the United States, for example, the political landscape where you need some people who care about tradition, who are careful about budgets, who care about borders, for example, and you need another voice that is more caring, more compassionate, more progressive, more forward thinking, more inclusive, less concerned about borders more humane to other countries. And both of these voices are perhaps critical to the furthering of a nation state. And when one voice becomes too loud or too powerful, then the other voice will grab for power through various different means. Because without those two voices, the the nation state will go too far in one direction or Will you know something bad will happen? I don't know. It, now, systems aren't necessarily oriented towards justice or toward the good in life, but uh, it is systems do operate in a in a way of achieving balance is one of the uh, principles of homeostasis and and systems. So, um, can systems can societies have operate like a system? Absolutely, but I'm pretty sure I did not. Answer your question, Junie. So if you have more <laughs> to that question, feel free to email me because I, I think your, your thinking was so beyond me that I didn't, it just went over my head. This next email is from Upper Tier patron Emily from Connecticut. They write Would you consider this stonewalling or something else? My husband goes mute during conflict, despite how gentle I can be during this time. For example, I asked my husband if he enjoys spending time with our daughter. Every time I ask him to watch or spend time with our daughter, he spends his time on the phone the entire time. When I asked this question of him, does he like to spend time with our daughter, he shut down and kept his eyes averted from me. This went on for two hours. At the end of the two-hour mark, I asked him this. Yes or no, are we going to discuss this conflict or not? He still did not answer. I asked him this question over and over. I assured him that I would not be upset if he told me no. After 45 minutes, he mumbled no. I kept to my word and did not talk about it again that night. After this, he began to interact with me as he normally would. This extreme reaction is only when we discuss anything about feelings, concerns, finances, etc. I told him before how hurt I felt, I feel when he shuts down, but it is always the same. I genuinely believe that he does not mean to hurt me. Any speculation. End of email. Well, the first thing Emily Ice will say is, this sounds really rough. I mean, you're talking about, there's a lot of layers here. One is, he, you're you're asking him, does he enjoy spending time at all with your daughter, the, you know, both of your daughter, and he won't answer for a long time. And then after, a you know, two hours, 45 minutes, he will mumble, no, essentially, I do not like spending time with our daughter. Uh, That's rough right there. (laughs) And then also that you're asking him, according to you, in this nice way. I I think there's a chance that you're coming off with some tone towards him, for sure. And it's not all nice, but you're asking him, you know, yes or no. Are we going to talk about this? And he doesn't say anything. And uh, I don't know who's to blame there. Uh, I certainly have seen that a lot uh, with the couples I work with. And that dynamic sounds very rough. And then uh, you're saying that whenever you talk about feelings or concerns, he shuts down to the point where he he doesn't even look at you, and he stares at the ground and won't respond. Uh, that's got to be very frustrating. It's very isolating. It's very dysfunctional. I mean, how are you supposed to talk about things in a relationship if that's what's happening? So. I don't know what to call it. I don't know why it's happening. You're asking, do you consider it stonewalling? Um, probably. You know, stonewalling is usually a result of the individual being so distressed that they just can't think straight and they just they just shut down. And they, your, you know, husband sounds like that's what's happening. I mean, he does not sound like he's doing well in those moments. But is it justifiable? Maybe you're. Maybe you have a lot of tone, maybe you are really pressuring in your language and your communication, I don't know. Maybe he has a neurological difference that causes him to overload and become overwhelmed under that kind of interaction. Maybe he has a lot of PTSD about conflict and about disapproval, I don't know. But obviously therapy is uh, called for. A related email here from someone, anonymous person, says I am wondering what causes someone to become easily flooded. For example, after an argument, they become flooded for hours or even days. Or after repeated experiences like these, they stay in a flooded state where it is harder to access decision-making skills, rational thinking, emotions, etc. Also is flooded the right word for this? If it's not flooding, what might it be? Could it be something like dissociation instead? End of email. Yeah, it sounds more like dissociation, but it's impossible to tell from your description. For someone to be seemingly flooded to the point, as you're saying, where they can't access decision-making skills or rational thinking or even their emotions for days, this is uh, signs of dissociation. Not necessarily, right? You can also have spikes in PTSD stress that can cause that kind of separation from emotions and separation from your cognitive ability, meaning that you're in a. Think of it like when you are. Uh, I remember early on uh, someone teaching PTSD, and one of the things they said is that for some people in their mind, when it comes to stress, they have like a bunch of wet wood. And for other people, they have like dry kindling, like dry leaves. So for some people, you light a, a match and instantly it's they're on fire. Whereas other people, it takes a while for them to get on fire. So for those with PTSD, they have the dry kindling, where a little bit of stress will cause a huge fire for them, like a forest fire. And it might rage for days and days. Whereas other people, neurologically, it just doesn't happen for them because they aren't like a raw wound just waiting to be triggered and for some people with this experience they can be triggered and it can cause them to go into days weeks months of of a forest fire in their emotional in their emotions such that they're in a constant state of distress and just trying to live minute to minute and it's not dissociation although it can look like dissociation um So, yeah, usually when we're using the word flooded, we're talking about, you know, in the moment. But the word flooded has a lot of different usages. So uh, it's not necessarily a a technical, well-defined term. I mean, it is defined in literature. But anyway, that's what I'll say about that. And I think I will end it there. So everyone out there, take care of yourself. Be proud of your accomplishments for everyone out there who's had successes. You should be able to be proud of yourself and you should be able to talk about it with your loved ones without feeling like they're going to be negative about it. Right. I mean, we have enough shaming going on in our society anyway. And, you know, most of us are on some sort of path, you know, with a with a career or with family. You know, we have goals in life and when we work hard and we achieve those goals, then you should be socially rewarded for that. People should support you. People should say, good for you, and maybe more than once. Without any complication or envy or jealousy, it should just be unconditional uh, love and appreciation and kudos from other people. You deserve that. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you also deserve that. You really, really do.